everyone happy tuesday it's muriel here we are live from church cross of life campus um it is a hopping evening here at unity let's see we had the handbells were rehearsing adult choir was rehearsing our council our church council is finishing their meeting upstairs they are um, reviewing the annual meeting they are trying to figure out holy week and easter sunday schedules they are starting to put um, stuff into place for our parking lot fundraising appeal that will be going out soon there's just there's so many fantastic people around here doing great things and um, it's a fun night to be part of what's happening at church and we're glad that you're here to be part of what's happening at church this is our Acts Plus Bible study. It is the seventh and final week. Seven, of course, being the biblical number of completion. So a good one to end. We have been working our way through the material that our confirmation students do for their the third trimester of their Bible year. So having done Old Testament and New Testament, then they have this trimester called Acts Plus, which our students are starting tomorrow night. So we'll close tonight by praying for them, but uh, keep them in your prayers as they start this trimester tomorrow and as they go through the material over the next uh, nine weeks, I think. So uh, that, that'll be really cool that they get to then walk in the footsteps of what you've just been walking in. So we've been walking through Acts Plus, which is a couple books from the Old Testament, the book of Acts, and then all of Paul's letters. So we are um, finishing that up tonight by looking at some of the controversies that come out of those letters, which are many 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 so we're glad that you're here to dive into all of that with us i'm going to start by sharing a devotion um, written by one of my favorite christian writers whose name is quinn caldwell and this is a devotion um, based on romans 16. we used uh, excerpts from it as our devotion for the council meeting tonight at which someone reminded me it's international women's day I did not know this, but as you will see, it is the perfect devotion for International Women's Day. It is based on Romans chapter 16, verses 1 through 7. If you remember from last week, Romans is one of the letters that was definitely written by Paul, probably the last one he wrote, kind of a theological um, last will and testament, trying to put down on paper um, his big, big ideas about Jesus and God um, one final time before he's killed um, and so this passage is the very end of the book of Romans. So having done all of this beautiful theology, Paul now concludes um, with uh, a section of greeting various people. And this is what he says. This is Romans chapter 16, verses 1 through 7. I commend to you our sister Phoebe, a deacon of the church at Centuri, so that you may welcome her as the Lord in the Lord as is fitting for the saints and help her in whatever she may require from you for she has been a benefactor of many and of myself as well. Greet Prisca and Aquila who work with me in Christ Jesus and who risk their necks for my life to whom not only I give thanks but also all the churches of the Gentiles. Good night Nancy. Greet also um, all the church in their house. Greet my beloved Ephenatus, who was the first convert in Asia for Christ. Greet Mary, who has worked very hard among you. Greet Andronicus and Junia, my relatives who were in prison with me. They are prominent among the apostles, and they were in Christ before I was. And then at the very end of the passage, there's a little asterisk after the name Junia that says, 
or Junius. Other ancient authorities read Junius. And here's the devotion. Not being in school anymore, I don't pay as much attention to footnotes as I used to. But here's the story of a footnote that makes my blood boil. At the end of Paul's letter to the church in Rome, he sends greetings to a bunch of people. One of them is Junia, a woman whom he calls an apostle. For a while at the beginning of Christianity, everyone was like, Junia, cool, got it. Then a bunch of churchmen got involved and for a long time, like hundreds and hundreds of years, everybody insisted it had to have been a man named Junius which is the male version of the name, because how in the world could it ever be a woman that had been called an apostle? Now, the vagaries of biblical Greek make it just possible that Paul was referring to a boy, Junius, and not Junia. But Junius is a name virtually unknown in New Testament times, while Junia was fairly common. There is no reason to think it would be Junius, except an assumption that men are better at godding than women. Today, most scholars agree that Junia was indeed a woman. And yet, if you're reading the New Revised Standard Version, which is the version we use at Cross of Life and Christ the King, you'll see a little superscripted letter directing you to a footnote, which will tell you that the name could be Junius. It might look like academic rigor, but it is, quite simply, a nod to centuries worth of misogyny in the church. I suppose it could be worse. The translation, the message, just renders it Junius and has done with it. Friends, he concludes, it was never Junius, not in real life and not in a footnote. It was always Junia. She was always powerful, always faithful, always a carrier of God's good news, always an apostle just as women always have been. Friends, let us pray for the leadership of women that has always been, and without which we would be lost, thank you. For the times we have erased or forgotten or changed their names, forgive us and set us free. Amen. All right. Thank you for joining for our opening devotion of this week seven on our Acts Plus Bible study, studying the Apostle Paul. We're glad that you're here. Feel free to put a note in the comments and say who you are and how you're doing, where you're watching from. I'll try and keep an eye on them as we go. You can always throw in any questions that you have as we go through, um, and we'll have a good conversation together. I'm glad that you're here. All right, let's launch in. A little bit of review. So we've been following Paul, who is traveling the Mediterranean Sea area. He's preaching the good news, and he's corresponding with the communities with which he has visited. So in the last section, we talked about how Paul lands on one particular image to help new believers with all their differences, Jews, Gentiles, men and women, Romans, non-Romans, to help them all realize that they are one in Christ. And the image that Paul uses is the image of a body with many parts. So each part has its own purpose, its own importance. Each person in God's kingdom is like a body part. So we're all different, but members of one body body of Christ. So we don't all have to be eyes. In fact, if we were, how would we hear? But instead, our diversity is our strength. Um, Paul writes into several layers of conflict, with, which we talked about every week, but just to review, um, he writes to navigate the conflict between Jewish followers of Jesus and Gentile followers of Jesus. 
he writes to navigate between followers of Jesus and the broader um, Roman culture um, in which they all exist. Um, and he writes to navigate conflict between um, believers who are in Jerusalem, which was kind of the hub of everything, and believers who are further out around the world. So he's navigating lots of, of different cultures. He's trying to help them stay all connected in Christ um, and trying to help them develop a theology of unity in diversity that can serve them well as they keep growing this new movement. Lots of conflicts come up from the very beginning. Um, in the book of Acts, it talks about these beautiful communities that hold all possessions in common and, and share everything they have. And the letters really tell a different story because clearly he's writing to address um, lots of hard things that are happening. So we are going to look tonight at several topics that have created controversy in the epistles, the letters, both by Paul and by others, that follow um, our Gospels and Acts in our New Testament. And um, these epistles, they have some of the most beautiful passages in Scripture, and they have some of the ugliest passages in Scripture. Um, the epistles are where um, all of the most beautiful sayings come from, like things that people memorize or have tattooed on their bodies or decorate in Bible journaling classes or like needlepoint into pillows. Most of those passages are from the epistles. Also, passages in the epistles have been used as the most judgmental, most um, exclusionary. Um, they've been used to justify slavery, physical abuse against women. Um, against the LGBT community. They've been used especially to ban women from roles in the church. So we feel it is incredibly important to cover these topics with our confirmation students in age-appropriate ways um, because these debates are still happening right now, right? Like um, if I go a block down the road, there's churches where they would not let me up into a pulpit, right? And, and our kids have to learn to navigate that world. And so we want to equip them to be able to have those conversations when someone says to them, but it says in the Bible, X, Y, and Z. So the biggest thing we tell our confirmation students, because we want to equip you to have those conversations too. So the biggest thing we tell them and you um, is when we look at the epistles, remember that you are reading someone else's mail. Right? These letters were written to a particular context. They were not written to us. So we are, we are reading someone else's mail. And so the important thing is context, context, context. And we tell them, if you take the text out of context, you are left with a con. Um, so then uh, we have them compare different passages, which is what um, you and I are going to do together right now, we compare different passages, notice how they're different, and, and learn more about, about why and how we make sense of those and use those. So for an adult audience like y'all, um, there are four questions that we suggest you bring to the table when you're reading the epistles to help you uh, make sense of what you're reading. And here are the four questions. Number one, was this letter actually written by Paul? Um, some letters were definitely written by Paul, some definitely weren't, some are debated. So was this letter actually written by Paul? Number two, was this portion of this letter actually written by Paul? Or was it edited in later? 
because it, um, it's pretty clear that the letters have all undergone editing. Um, so some passages are part of the original letter and some are not. Um, number three, is this letter case specific or universal? So is, is Paul or whoever wrote it, are they writing to address a very particular circumstance in a very particular place? Or are they trying to put down kind of a universal ethic of, for a universal Christian ethic? Um, and then there's one other question, but we'll, we'll save that one for the end. Oh, wait, there's, yeah, there, I'm sorry. The fourth one is um, the ethics in this letter, how do they compare to the ethics of the culture that that movement was existing in? Then there's a fifth one we'll talk about at the end. But was the letter written by Paul? Was this portion of the letter written by Paul? Is it meant to be universal or specific? And how does it compare to the context in which it was? Good night, Janet. Oh, council's heading home. Say good night and give a round of applause to your wonderful church council members. They work so hard on our behalf. There goes Mark Miller, our stewardship chair. God bless him. Um, okay. Oh, there goes all our lovely council members. There goes Eric. God bless them. Oh, and I'll pause and say hi to y'all. Oh, Vicky's tuning in from Florida. Julie from South Carolina. That's wonderful. Glad you're here, ladies. All right, let's talk about that first question. Was this letter actually written by Paul? Now, there are one, two, three, four, five, six, seven. Seven letters that were definitely written by Paul. All scholars agree. Here are those seven. Romans, 1 Corinthians, 2 Corinthians, Galatians, Philippians, 1 Thessalonians, and Philemon. Then, there are three letters that were maybe written by Paul. 2 Thessalonians, Colossians, and Ephesians. So Colossians and Ephesians, um, they are really similar to each other. They are similar-ish to Paul's letters, but there are, there are a few differences that make people wonder and most they study um, they study vocabulary so they study which words are used they study themes right are there similar themes or are they very different and they study historical clues like are there any references to outside historical happenings that would cause us to put this to date this letter um, to when Paul was writing or to later than he was writing uh, and then there are um, several that are attributed to Paul, like they're written, it is I, Paul, writing, but they're definitely not written by Paul. This is first in Second Timothy and in Titus. Um, that sounds really sketchy to us to say that it's Paul writing, but to not be Paul. Um, but uh, like, like it sounds like plagiarizing. Um, it, it was really common in the ancient world to write in the name of someone. Like a lot of the Psalms are written in the name of King David. Um, and, and it's more like it's a way of honoring them and it's a way of saying that you're like a student of their school of thought. So it wasn't, uh, it wasn't like plagiarizing. It, it, was, it was a common practice. So lots of debate um, over which letters were, were definitely Paul, but that's kind of the common breakdown. And, and if you look at all of these letters, um, the, the theology that they present and, and the conduct codes as far as how, how they the roles that they um, ascribe to different people in the family units and in these churches, it varies wildly, especially if you keep going and you add 
you know, the ones I listed are all letters that are at least attributed to Paul. And then you have um, all of the pastoral letters after that, very wildly in terms of their theology. Um, some are super egalitarian, like the famous line from Galatians, this is definitely Paul, saying, there is neither Jew nor Greek, slave nor free, male nor female, for all are one in Christ Jesus. And then you have stuff like First Peter, um, which is definitely not written by Paul, that says, you know, for the Lord's sake, accept the authority of every human institution, whether emperor or governors, um, God's will is done through them. Um, slaves, accept the authority of your masters with all deference. Not only those who are kind, but also those to, who are harsh because Christ also suffered thusly. And so you're following his example by letting them abuse you. Um, wives, in the same way, accept the authority of your husbands. You can see how incredibly problematic this is. Um, even if they don't obey the word, they may be won over by your conduct when they see your purity and reverence. Don't adorn yourselves outside. Um, let your adornment be the inner self. Um, let's see, like thus Sarah obeyed Abraham. Um, husbands, show consideration for your wives. Um, paying honor to the woman as the weaker sex. So, wide range of perspectives in these letters. So that's important to know. Um, and so one thing to think about is, was this letter written by Paul or not? Important, important piece. All right, question number two, was this portion of this letter written by Paul? Like I said, it looks like later um, editors went through um, and and um, either took things out or added things in, mostly added things in, I think. I, mean, I don't know how we would know if they took them out. Um, and in a, a clear example of this appears to be in 1 Corinthians. And um, what we notice is that different parts of that same letter show wildly different theology around women in churches. Good night, Caitlin. That's Caitlin. She's our youth rep for council, and she is fantastic. Oh, all the rest of our council folks are coming down now. Nice job, council team. So say a, say a thank you and a shout out to Ed Dominski, who's our technology chair, and to Jackie Harrington, who is our servant ministry chair. They do such wonderful work on our behalf on the council. And I'm just going to slide to the other room. There's Here comes Mary, our council president. She's done a phenomenal job. They all just led us through an annual meeting that was just incredibly effective and powerful. Good night, Mary. And there, I'll just move so we can keep chugging through. Okay, so in 1 Corinthians, um, there are two different passages that have opposite theologies around women. And that's what makes people think that um, some was edited in. So listen to, um, let's see, 1 Corinthians 14, verse 33 and onward. There is a paragraph, it's in parentheticals, and it says, they've been talking about order and decency in the church service. And then there's this parenthetical that says, as in all the churches of the saints, Women should be silent in the churches. They are not permitted to speak, but should be subordinate as the law says. 
if there is anything they desire to know, i sorry, I can't read this with a straight face. If there is anything they should desire to know, let them ask their husbands at home, for it is shameful for a woman to speak in church. That's 1 Corinthians 14. Compare this to 1 Corinthians 4, which says, any man who prays or prophecies with something on his head disgraces his head. Any woman who prays or prophecies with her head unveiled disgraces her head. So um, this is talking about like what you should be worn in church. And you can hear that it takes for granted that women in church should be praying and prophesying. So that super doesn't line up. Um, or, you know, compare it to the passage we read starting in the end of Romans 16, where Paul is greeting, asking them to send on greetings to church leaders. And of the eight people he mentions, six are women. And all the first four are women, I think. So it, that's why they think, okay, it looks like someone came back in and added those passages, those verses in 13. The other thing that makes them think it was added is that different manuscripts have them in different places. So in some manuscripts, those verses actually come after verse 40. So it's like someone came in later and, and slid in this thing about trying to get women to be quiet. Um, looks a little fishy. So that is... Um, question number two, was this section of the letter written by Paul? Or was it tampered with? Question number three, is this letter case-specific or universal? So a letter like 1 Corinthians is an example of Paul seems to be writing to a very particular community addressing very specific issues and conflicts they are having versus a letter like Romans where Paul is trying to kind of give a final summary to be circulated among all churches everywhere of what we believe as followers of Christ. Um, so just an example from 1 Corinthians, there's a lot of stuff about sexuality in 1 Corinthians that has been used um, to, against the LGBT community. And like, here's one, you can hear um, kind of that, that something specific is going on that he's talking about. So he says, it is actually reported that there is sexual immorality among you and of a kind that is not even found among pagans for a man is living with his father's wife. Um, so you can hear he's, he's writing to a really specific thing and then there's a couple chapters in there um, about sexual ethics, including ones against sodomy. Um, which is what has just been such a weapon that people have used. And, and if you read the whole letter, you can hear, like, this is not a treatise on a theology of sexuality. This is Paul um, giving specific advice to something wonky that's happening in Corinth at the time. Um, so it's not wrong, I don't think, for us as Christians as we read our Bibles, to look at things that were written to a very particular context and then and then try and extrapolate from that something that that guides us and helps us in our walk today. I, that's not like that's a, a worthwhile exercise for sure. It's just one that should be done with a lot of fear and trembling and, and a lot of study into what was that original context so that we're making accurate Christ-like interpretations as we bring it into our own lives. Um, and then um, one last one, which is how do the ethics in the letter that we're reading compare to the ethics of the culture in which they were written? 
And the classic example on this is Paul's writings on slavery. So you remember that verse from Galatians, that there's neither Jew nor free, neither, I'm sorry, neither slave nor free, neither Jew nor Greek, neither man nor woman. Um, but there's also this interesting, uh, I think it might be the shortest book in scripture. It is the letter to Philemon, and it was almost definitely written by Paul. Um, I think it's only like 350 words long, and I'm going to actually basically read the whole thing, but let me let me set the stage a little bit. Um, so slavery, you know, obviously where, where a person can be property, um, and it's a big deal in the Bible because it's part of the story of the people of God from the very beginning, that defining story in Exodus is where the people of Israel are slaves in Egypt and God delivers them and sets them free. So people, um, th this is a, a big topic and at the point in which Paul's writing, there were six million slaves in the Roman Empire. Six million. So slavery is, is incredibly common. It affects a huge number of people. And um, so in that context, Paul writes this letter to Philemon that, well, let me just tell you, it has been used throughout the his, throughout our history for pe by people on both sides of the slavery debate. Um, but here, so here's kind of what's happening. Um, Paul writes a letter to a dear friend of his named Philemon, name of the book. And so here's what's going on. So Paul is in prison and um, he meets a runaway slave named Onesimus, who's from Colossae. So this is uh, a runaway slave is hunted, he's in danger. So he can either keep running for his life or he can return to his master and be either branded as the, with the mark of a runaway or, or maybe killed. Now Philemon is the owner of Onesimus and he's a powerful member of the Christian church in Colossae. Um, so Paul, who is a close friend of Philemon, meets this runaway slave Onesimus in prison. Onesimus um, converts, becomes a Christ follower. Um, and so Paul, who loves Onesimus, uh, is, decides to try and use his persuasive skills to save his life um, and, and writes this letter and sends Onesimus back to his master from whom he has run away carrying this letter. Now, as you hear it, you can hear it like, you know, if you try and if you want to get something out of somebody, you might like try and kind of butter them up first. Like, oh, you look so nice. Dinner smells so good. Thanks for doing all that laundry. Hey, can you drive me to the movies? So listen to what Paul does in this persuasive letter and listen for what Paul is asking for. Um, and you can hear his affection for both of them and you can just see his diplomatic skills at work. He tells Philemon he trusts him to do the right thing. So he says, Paul, I, Paul, am a prisoner for the sake of Christ. I write this letter to you, Philemon, my good friend and companion in the work. Also these other people, God bless you, Christ's blessing. Every time your name comes up, I say, oh, thank you. Thank you for the love and faith you have for our Lord Jesus, which brims over to other believers. I keep praying the faith that we hold keep showing up and people will recognize Christ in all of it. You have no idea, friend, how good your love makes me feel, especially when I see your hospitality to fellow believers. In line with this, I have a favor to ask you. As Christ's ambassador and as a prisoner for him, um, I wouldn't hesitate to command this if I thought it necessary, but instead I'm going to make it a request. 
while here in jail, I have, I have found um, a child in the faith, and here he is carrying this letter to you, Onesimus. Um, I'm sending him back to you, even though it feels like cutting off my right arm. I wanted in the worst way to keep him here as you're standing to help me while I'm in jail, but I didn't want to do anything behind your back and make you do a good deed that you hadn't agreed to. So maybe it's all the best that you lost him for a while. You're getting him back now for good. No mere slave this time, but a true, true Christian brother. That's what he was to me, and he'll be even more to you. So if you consider me a comrade in arms, welcome him back as you would me. If he damaged anything or owed you anything, chalk it to my account. Here's my signature. I stand behind it. I don't need to remind you, do I, that you owe your life to me, right? Do me this favor. You'll be doing it for Christ, and it will also do my heart good. I know you well enough to know that you will. You'll probably go far beyond what I've written. And by the way, get a room ready for me. Because of your prayers, I fully expect to be your best again. Uh, my cellmates in prison say hello. Also, my coworkers, all the best to you from the Master Jesus Christ. That, my friends, is the letter to Philemon. Interesting, right? What do you think happened? Well, the letter was saved, preserved. That in itself might indicate a positive outcome. Also, in non-biblical historical records around this time, we see a bishop of Ephesus is a man named Onesimus. It is not a common name. There is a very good chance that the once runaway slave, once runaway slave becomes the bishop of Ephesus. Seems a very Christ-like move to me. So, in analyzing a letter like that, people say, huh, so was Paul pro-slavery or was he against it? Well, doesn't seem like he was against it because he sends that slave back to his master. Well, it doesn't seem like he's for it because he tells Philemon to welcome him back with open arms and treat him as you would me. Hmm. Hard to say. And the main argument seems to be, if you're trying to put Paul in a good light, which I don't know, maybe we don't have to work to do that, but if we are, you say, well, look at the culture in which this letter was written. It sounds wrong to us because it, he's not straight up saying slavery is evil. But he is pushing the boundaries of a society in which slavery was totally accepted. And little by little, he's affecting small change over time, as is possible in the cultural context, to move the needle towards justice. Cop out? Maybe. True? Also maybe. All right, we better wrap up, you guys. But um, I, I think the big picture that we want to take, want you to take away is that there's huge variety in the pages of these final letters in our New Testament. And just to know that in general, as we're dating the material in these letters, um, the as time passes, the theology gets more conservative. So um, it, it starts out as a very egalitarian, tearing down all the boundaries between different groups, all are one, um, women leaders, um, liberated slaves, 
Um, and then over time, it starts to get more hierarchical. And, and generally, the more hierarchical a piece of writing is, the later it is. Um, and so um, and, and in, those, in those earlier letters, some of, of the most problematic sounding parts um, seem to be later additions. So that could be explained by a lot of different things. Um, maybe it's all written by Paul and his theology just changes drastically over time. That doesn't seem totally likely, but, but it's possible. Um, it could be because um, subsequent generations that are getting further and further away from the experience of Jesus' life and death and resurrection um, kind of start to settle in for the long haul. So when they think Jesus is coming back like tomorrow, then they're like, yeah, do away with private property. Everybody live in common. Everybody's equal. You know, the whole world order is going to be changed and transformed and perfected when Jesus comes back like tomorrow. And then as they start to realize, oh, it's going to be a while, then they start to be like, well, we should probably have some structure. We should have some rules. We should probably, you know, make some power hierarchies. And just like, you know, just like any movement, right? It starts out really idealistic um, and then kind of makes concessions to reality over and over and over um, and then gets more rigid. Um, it also could be because pressure is mounting on them from the wider culture um, in two different ways. First, the pressure is mounting to show why their movement is unique and, and is different. So over time, you know, remember originally, and for at least the first century, maybe two centuries, th this is a, just a movement within Judaism, right? And, and it's a very gradual process where they say, no, you know what, we, we are going to be a separate religion with our own thing. Um, and then that, that kind of self-differentiation process that they go through kind of could create a more black-white kind of theology. And then they're also starting to get increasing pressure from the Roman, Greco-Roman culture in which they're existing, um, which, you know, is willing to treat with them as long as they don't, you know, ruffle too many feathers or, or defy the empire. Um, and so as that persecution mounts from those sources, there's maybe more and more pressure to, um, to not challenge the status quo and kind of fall in line. So we see um, this shift toward hierarchy um, as we progress through years in our New Testament writings. So all of those are things that we can be sorting through in our head when we read these scriptures. Um, and what we tell, we tell our confirmation students um, that we believe um, four things about the Bible as, as this is our, our ELCA Lutheran tradition talking. We believe it is the inspired word of God, right? So it is, it is inspired by God's spirit. It is sacred. It's not just the same as anything people have written down ever. But we do also believe that it is written by people at different times for different audiences and under different circumstances. So context, context, context. We believe it is not meant to be a history book, although it contains history, and it is not meant to be a science book, although it contains science, right? It is trying to get at deeper meaning of who we are and whose we are and how we are to live in response to that. And the fourth thing is that the Bible contradicts itself, right? There's a lot of different viewpoints in those pages. So really what it comes down to is that while the entire Bible is sacred to us, 
as Lutherans, not all parts of the Bible are created equal. Um, and we need to have um, some kind of ethic that guides us as we go through these words that helps us weigh different passages against each other when they disagree. Because anyone with any kind of critical lens reading the Bible at all can see that there's so much variety, different parts disagree. So um, as to what that ethic is, you know, it's kind of on each of us to develop that, um, but we don't do that totally on our own, right? Um, so we know, for example, like, well, at least for me, I'm going to value something that was written by Paul more than something that was written not by Paul. And I think for all of us who are Christ followers, we need to prioritize something that was said by Jesus over something that was said by someone else about Jesus. And, and in particular, Jesus gives us one specific scripture that he says, he literally says, this is the scripture by which you judge all other scriptures. And it's, um, you know, those, the greatest commandment, love God with all your heart and soul and mind and strength and love your neighbor as yourself. So as Christians, while the entire Bible is sacred to us, we use that love ethic to kind of judge everything else and to help us see which passages teach us about God and which passages really kind of teach us more about humans and human nature and human history. Does that make sense? So when we come to like really ugly passages in scripture and goodness knows there are plenty of them, um, we have a couple options we can explain them away. And I don't mean that um, as bad as it sounds. I mean, we can look at the context and say, oh, you know what, it's actually pretty, you know, it's actually pretty justice oriented compared to the milieu in which it was, or, or it's really only specific to this context, or right, like, like we can um, kind of minimize the hurtfulness of it in that way. Or I think I kind of think we have permission to disregard passages altogether when they don't fit Jesus' love ethic and say, you know what, that passage really teaches us more about humanity than it teaches about God. So um, feel free to push back against any of those ideas, by the way, and I would love, oh, I so wish we were in the same spot so I could hear your own thoughts on how you decide which scripture um, guides you and guides your life. And if you want to jump in and say any of your favorite scriptures, I would love to hear that as well. Um, that's my guiding passage, though. The love God and love everyone else, too. So, friends, it has been such a pleasure going through this Bible study with you. I learned a ton. Um, I hope you did as well. I know I con our confirmation students will as they start this next trimester. So we're going to close by praying for them and blessing them. Um, and we'll bless us on our way. So let us pray. Dear God, thank you for every single student in our confirmation program right now. They are such a wonderful, diverse bunch of kids. Um, you know, we have jocks and geeks and drama kids and, um, and just it is so cool to see their energy, um, their great questions. Um, they're all as they are working their way through figuring out who you have called them to be, oh God. Support them in this work and help our church uh, support them in it as well. Bless them in this new trimester. May they dive into all of the diversity of the letters that we find in our scriptures. Um, may they ask really good questions and may they 
come away with a really good sense of what these letters are about and how to approach them with great uh, great reverence and um, and great appreciation for the context in which they are written. Bless Michelle as she embarks on her first teaching trimester. She, oh my gosh, you knew exactly what you were doing when you called her to this role in this place. So bless her in that work. Bless all of the parents who come to be small group leaders. May they be those affirming, authentic, available adults for our students. And may they receive a blessing as well. And then bless all of us who got to do this Bible study. Thank you for all the ways that you continue to teach us through these words. Thanks for the humanity of the Bible, that it's not sanitized or cleaned up, but that it makes us work and dig and find your holiness um, in and among the mess of our lives. So thank you for your scripture, for the chance to be together through all these various technologies. May we all go from here knowing your peace. In your name we pray. Amen. Thanks for being part of this, friend. It's been lovely to have you here. God bless you all. Stay in touch. We will begin streaming our Wednesday Lent services every Wednesday evening at 6.50 p.m. Starting tomorrow and all the Wednesdays to Easter, we will 6.50 to 7.30. We'll be streaming our service and you'll get to see some of those confirmation students in action there. So God bless you and keep you. Thanks for being part of the journey.